Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. Well, again, I just want to welcome you if you are new to Apostles. We're so glad you're here. Uh, My name is David Cumbie. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, this is the beginning of a new year uh, for us here at Apostles. And as we begin this new year together, I want to take just a moment and talk about our mission here, our our vision for what uh, we believe God has called us to be and to do. And our shorthand for that is to be a community following Jesus in Houston. Uh, what's the, the big why behind that? The real why, the conviction we have, the belief that we have that drives that vision is that we were made for life with God for the glory of God, that it's all about God and life with him. And the way that we experience that life is through following Jesus. And our shorthand for that is to live by three goals, to be with Jesus and to become like Jesus and to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. And so that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us, uh, individually and as a community. And our hope, our desire is to, is to grow in that as we learn to follow Jesus and to invite others into that. We long for uh, the lost and the least, those without Christ, and you know, the hope of the gospel to know him. And so we want to be a community that's inviting people into this life with God for the glory of God. But as we, as we press into that vision for a new year in 2023, um, I want to ask the question of what does it look like for us to follow Jesus? Uh, and Specifically, what does it look like for us to follow Jesus in the messiness of everyday life? How, how do we live out this vision and this mission in, in the midst of what we all are feeling right here and right now in this moment? The things we've been through this week, the, the hopes and the fears that we, count, we carry with us, the, uh, the, the relational challenges, the the, the pain, the, the joy, all of it, all that big mess that is our lives. How do we actually follow Jesus together in the mess of everyday life? And so what we're going to do over the next few uh, months, basically between now and May, is we're going to ask Jesus to help us answer that question. And specifically to answer that question, we want to look at the Sermon on the Mount, these teachings of Jesus that we find in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount if you're not familiar with it, is some of Jesus' most famous teachings. Even if you have never heard of the Sermon on the Mount, if you've never read the Sermon on the Mount, chances are that you've heard quotes from the Sermon on the Mount, or you're familiar with ideas that can be found in the Sermon on the Mount. For example, uh, judge not lest you be judged, right? That, that gets thrown around a lot, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. People are familiar with that. That comes from the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Or love your enemies, uh, ideas like you are the light of the world, you're you the salt of the world. These are uh, ideas that are found in the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord's Prayer, the most famous prayers in human history, is found in the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And so what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is, is uh, the closest thing we can get to a manifesto uh, from Jesus. This is his kind of kingdom manifesto, the Magna Carta. This is, this is what life in the kingdom 
looks like and feels like. As one, uh, one uh, commentator said, it's the, the kingdom of God breaking into real life. That's what the Sermon on the Mount represents. And so it's this kingdom of God breaking in. It's this grace-shaped life that we can experience in Jesus. And so as we begin our series in the Sermon on the Mount, I, I want to look... Uh, at the passage I just read from Matthew, really focusing on chapter 7, not beginning with the beginning, but actually beginning with the end. And in a sense, I kind of want to like plug this into Google and let us tell us how to get to the destination first before we plow forward uh, trying to make our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And so we want to look at kind of where Jesus ends so we can see where it is that we're going. And so I want to invite you to open a Bible. There should be one in the seat back near you, or you can pull this up on your phone. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. That's what we want to look at together this morning. So as you're turning there, let me, let me kind of set this up a little bit for us. So Jesus is ending his, invita- or ending his teaching with an invitation. Uh, and it's an invitation that comes with a warning, Uh, A warning given through the means of a vivid picture, this metaphor of how we should approach Jesus and life, uh, the life and the teachings of Jesus that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. So that may be familiar with you, this this picture of two houses, one built on a rock and one built on the sand. And so we're going to look at what is Jesus trying to say through this picture. But before we look at what Jesus says, I I want us to maybe kind of step back before we dive into the scriptures and just think about kind of how we approach God's word uh, as the people of God. So today, here's a reality that we have to account for. You and I have access to more information than any other time in human history. We have access to more information than any human being that has ever lived on the planet before us. And so just kind of let that sink in, the realities of that. Some researchers have said uh, that basically the amount of information that is available to us is doubling every 12 hours. That's how prolific it's become. And if you've been tracking uh, some of the news lately, uh, artificial intelligence is beginning to take some major leaps, some significant leaps that are going to make that rate of expansion of knowledge and information go even faster. And so just think about what that means. It means when you got up this morning versus when you wake up tomorrow morning, the the rate of information increase that's available to you is growing exponentially. So you're being bombarded with more and more and more information. Uh, I think we all kind of feel this. Intuitively, we we, we sense this. I remember when uh, we first moved to Houston, uh, we were really excited. We went to the Johnson Space Center. So uh, raise your hand if you've ever been out to Johnson Space Center. Yeah, yeah. So if, if you go out there, and you, there's different tours you can take, but one of the tours is for mission control. It's, some of you have seen this. Uh, you sat in that room where you kind of look down over mission control. So this was for the Apollo missions. And what was amazing is the tour guy was explaining how all this works. So these aren't actually computers, right? These are the, uh, the interfaces for the computers. The actual computers are like on a whole separate floor. They take up a whole floor uh, elsewhere in the building, and they, they all just kind of pipe in the controls for those computers here in the control center. And so he was talking about all the complex you know, analytics and, and equations and all these kinds of things that they were using you know, back in, in the 60s to manage all this, to put a, a human being on the moon. 
And then after they kind of walk through all the complexities of that, what they do is they, they tell you, if you've got a smartphone, get out your smartphone and hold it out in front of you. And then they tell you, what you have in your hand contains more computing power and information than everything in this room that you can see. In other words, to put a man on the moon, you have more power in your hand, in your smartphone, than it took to put a human being on the moon. And I just, I'll never forget that. But I think that illustrates, right, this, this rate of explosion of information that we live in. The truth is that we have access to more information than ever before. And there's some implications for that, right? With more information, life in, in a very real way speeds up. Life can, can feel like it's going faster and faster and faster with more technology. We struggle to keep pace with our technology. Uh, it's become more normal for us, but at the same time, it is overwhelming, the amount of information that inundates us on a regular basis. And it's a difficult thing to do to keep up with that pace. It leaves us feeling anxious and tired, whether we realize it or not. Not only that, this constant flow of information has changed the way we handle information. So we are being shaped by this information revolution. In 2019, uh, author and cultural critic Neil Postman wrote in an article uh, appropriately titled, uh, Informing Ourselves to Death, uh, an observation about the information age. He says this, the tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commodity that can be bought and sold or used as a form of entertainment or worn like a garment to enhance one's status. It comes indiscriminately, directed at no one in particular, disconnected from our usefulness. We are glutted with information, drowning in information. We have no control over it, don't know what to do with it. That resonates with my experience of the world we live in now. We are constantly bombarded by all sorts of news and information, most of which we can't do anything about, most of which feels overwhelming to us, most of which we can't do actually any actionable thing with. It just comes at us over and over. And most of the time, our response to that information overload is anxiety or frustration or apathy about the information. We are conditioned, in other words, to let information come in one ear and go out the other ear. We're conditioned to respond that way. So here's what that means. We have information more than any other time in human history. We feel overwhelmed by it, and we've got, gotten used, been conditioned to not acting on it. Why does all of that matter in relation to the Sermon on the Mount? Because when we encounter the teachings of Jesus, we have to realize that we have been conditioned and we have to be very careful that we don't see and hear Jesus' powerful teaching as just more information. Just more data points that we can choose to ignore or not. We can feel overwhelmed by the Sermon on the Mount. We can let it go in one ear and out the other if we're not careful and so what we need as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount will actually help facilitate this, it, it, it'll cause in us humility to dwell up. It'll cause a posture of, of submitting and recognizing our need for God and his truth in our lives. And so we have to ask Jesus, will you help us? Will you help us hear and understand what he says? And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at what Jesus says here in Matthew 7 so that we might enter into the Sermon on the Mount 
with hearts that are predisposed to actually hear what God has to say and not just go in one ear and out the other. And so look at Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says this. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine. So I just want to stop there. These words of mine. What is Jesus talking about, these words? Well, he's talking about all the teaching that he's just given in Matthew 5 through chapter 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you were to step back and look at the Sermon on the Mount, there's certain things that would be helpful to know about how it's kind of structured. So if you're outlining the Sermon on the Mount, what you have is is kind of an introduction. Uh, the, The Beatitudes kind of provide that, an introduction. And then after that, there comes kind of some big picture themes. So you are the light of the world. You are a city on the hill. That kind of is an overarching theme for what God is going to reveal in the Sermon on the Mount. And then what follows that is a set of teachings. And there's a pattern even within the teachings. Within the teachings, there's kind of this three-part pattern. So you've heard it said, right? So, so there's this pointing to how things have been understood before. And then Jesus kind of takes a second step to expound on the human condition. This is what uh, you face in a fallen, broken world. And then the third part of that is, but I tell you. And then Jesus gives a, a, a new uh, transformational teaching, you might call it. It's an invitation into a whole new way of living in Christ. So there's, there's this outline. There's also, it's just, I think, helpful to, uh, to realize, and that's why we read the passage from Exodus, is that part of what Matthew is doing is he is communicating the authority of Jesus in multiple ways to tell these things, to reveal these things to us. And one of the ways that he does that is by referring to Moses, And so you get all these allusions throughout the book of Matthew. Even the way it's constructed points us to Moses. And the point is not that that Jesus is Moses. The point is that just as God spoke through Moses to God's people and ushered in this new life, a new exodus into the new promised land through a new Torah or law, so God is doing the same thing through Jesus. He is bringing about a new kingdom through this new deliverance or exodus into a new life with God. And so all that's pointing to the significance and the power of the Sermon on the Mount. But that being said, the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's important to recognize, doesn't tell us everything. It's not comprehensive in terms of Jesus' teaching. There's plenty of things that it does not address. It's not the whole gospel, but what I would say is helpful to to recognize is that it, it in a sense, is kind of distilled gospel, that, that we can kind of take sips of this teaching and it actually works its way through our whole life. And so in that way, it does point us to the gospel and to teaching, uh, and to uh, Jesus' teaching. So Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine. So that's what he's talking about is teaching. And then he follows that up by saying, and does them. So everyone who hears the word and does the word, or your, your translation, if you have the NIV, I like the NIV, it says, puts them into practice puts my words into practice. Uh, it's interesting, the, the Greek word here uh, for practice is poieo, uh, poieo. So poieo appears numerous times in the sermon. It comes up again and again. We, we kind of lose it in translation, but again and again, Jesus uses this word poieo. 22 times it occurs in the Sermon on the Mount. And what it's doing is reinforcing what Jesus is saying here at the end, It's not just enough, in other words, to hear the teachings of Jesus. Uh, We have to practice them. 
We have to actually work them out in our lives. We have to do something with the information that we receive. And to drive that point home, Jesus gives us a picture, one that may be, again, familiar to you. If you hear my teaching and put it into practice, he says this. He says, you will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. I love that translation from the ESV. It came crashing down, right? So what is Jesus saying here? Uh, Interesting, he's not contrasting uh, good and evil. What he's actually contrasting here are two ways to live, one wise and one foolish. Wise and foolish living. And it's also interesting that Jesus here, when he comments on wisdom and, and, and being foolish, and, and a lot of what he says in the Sermon on the Mount is not novel. It's not unique in the sense that no one had ever heard of things like this or no one had ever said anything like this. But many of the concepts we find in the Sermon on the Mount can be found in other philosophies and other religions around the world. Lots of ancient philosophies and religions, in other words, were offering perspectives on what is wise and what is foolish. And many of those overlap with what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount. But what Jesus is doing is he's speaking into this ongoing conversation about wisdom and what it means to be foolish. He's speaking into this conversation about how to live the good life, you could say. Now, in Jesus' day, um, he, he picks this... uh, he picks this image of a house, right? Because in Jesus' day, the house was, uh, was a sign. It was a symbol. It represented more than just the structure where you live or where you eat or where you sleep. The house that Jesus is referring to here, these houses represent a person's life, right? They represent a person's life. And, and that made sense to Jesus' first hearers because their home, their house, was where uh, multi, multiple generations of their family lived, uh, their house was oftentimes the, the epicenter of their business. So it, it was a source of, of their living. It was a commerce center. It, it's also the place uh, where um, everything was kind of transferred from one generation to the next. So people would inherit their parents' home or their parents' land. And so in a very real sense, when Jesus is talking about the house, he's talking about the symbol of your life. We don't tend to think about our house that way, but that's what Jesus is saying when he's talking about the house. And so Jesus says the wise person builds their house, their life, on the foundation of the rock, on Jesus himself and his teachings. By contrast, the foolish person uh, hears Jesus' teaching but doesn't build on it, doesn't do it. And that's the contrast Jesus doesn't say why some people do and why some people don't. He just kind of leaves that sitting there for us. Uh, He says some people do not build their life on the foundation of the rock, on the the foundation of Christ. They choose to build it on other things. And and again, we're not told why that is. And I love um, the fact that Jesus doesn't explain that. Uh, As one pastor pointed out, it's intentionally vague 
right? Because what it's inviting us to do is to ask the question, uh, well, am I building on the rock or am I building on the sand? And if I'm not building on the rock, why? If I'm not making Jesus the foundation of how I live and how I understand myself and how I see the world, the question is, why? Why am I not putting Jesus' teachings into practice? And so we've got these two ways to live that Jesus holds out, wise and foolish. Practice or don't practice what I'm teaching. Um, John Mark Comer, who's one of my um, favorite Bible teachers recently, he, he said this uh, about this passage. He says, what's sobering about Jesus' metaphor here is that in the short run, you cannot tell the difference between people who practice Jesus' teachings and who don't. You just might walk past two beautiful homes, right, and see two beautiful houses, not aware of the foundational issues that are underneath. And so Comer points this out. He says, from a certain distance, they might look the same. Two lives might look the same. They might both appear to be happy and successful, even faithful, until the flood comes. And the flood is the moment of truth. The flood is the moment of truth. People can seem great on the outside. We can look like we've got it all together. We can even look like we're doing, we're rock star Christians, right? But what's underneath gets revealed in hard times. It's part of what Jesus is saying here. Here in Houston, we, we know a little bit about flooding. <laughs> Uh, some of you know that we moved here a few weeks before Harvey. That was our introduction uh, to Houston. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, and so we know firsthand when Jesus talks about water, rain, storms, washing things away, the destructive power of a flood, that is not lost on us. Jesus says that when these hard things come into our life, they're like a flood and they can wash away everything in your life that you've built. They can wash it away if it's not built on the right foundation. The flood will come, is what Jesus is saying. We all will face floods in our life. And they'll come in different sizes and different moments. Uh, Floods will come through uh, loss and through suffering, through sickness, through injustice, betrayal. The list goes on and on. The floods will come. I think it's interesting here to notice that here Jesus doesn't say, Build your house on the rock and you'll never face a flood. He says, build your house on the rock and I will lead you through the flood. You'll come through on the other side of the flood. He knows life's going to be difficult. He's not pulling any punches. Jesus is being absolutely honest about what life is like. He said it to his disciples before he went to the cross. In this life you will have trouble. But remember that I'm with you. And so he wants us not just to survive the storms in our life, the floods in our life, but to thrive in the midst of whatever life throws at us. That's what he wants for us, that life with Jesus, actually even in the face of floods, can be solid and good and life-giving, even in our hardest moments. That's what Jesus can provide. The hard moments, though, Jesus says, will reveal what you have built your life upon. And so if my life by contrast, is built on, for example, let's say financial security and success. What will happen 
when you lose your job? What will happen when you have a serious career setback? If you've built your life on financial success and security, what will happen if I build my life around having the perfect mate, finding that perfect spouse? What will happen if I build it on a perfect marriage or a perfect family? When that relationship faces conflict or is broken, what will happen to my life? What happens if I build on selfishness? What happens if I build on an addiction? The storms of life will reveal what we build our life on. And so Jesus says if we build our life on anything but him, our life will fall. It will come crashing down. Now, sometimes that happens in dramatic fashion. Uh, in the world of social media, that's on display daily. Right? We, we see that. People's lives come crashing down. Marriages torn apart, ending in divorce, careers in financial ruin, moral failures. And it can look like that when a storm comes. But I think more times than not, it happens in small, small ways over decades. The, the, the torrent and the storm and just beating against our life slowly erodes the false foundations that we built in our life. And it's an erosion of character. It's a buildup of bitterness and resentment. It's a self-destructive behavior that slowly pushes everyone in your life away. It's the heartbreaking portrait of an unhappy life. And so Jesus' invitation here, his challenge to us, is to take stock. The Sermon on the Mount should shake us it should wake us up because God loves us. He doesn't want us to build on these foundations that will cause our lives to collapse. And so the Sermon on the Mount is meant to cause us to stop and ask ourselves hard questions about the depths of who we are and, and who we are becoming and how we're living this life. Questions about who we are and what we believe about God. The bottom line of Jesus' teaching here is this, that information does not equal transformation. It takes more than that. It takes more than just knowing the right things. You have to actually build your life on them. You actually have to build your life on the truth. I love what Ray Ortland says um, in his, uh, his little book, The Gospel. I quoted this last week. I highly, again, recommend it to you. But he kind of boils it down to this, and I think this is so helpful. He says it this way. He says, right belief without right practice makes you a hypocrite. Right practice without right belief makes you fragile. When you encounter things and you don't know actually what you believe, you face all kinds of issues of self-doubt and lack of faith and loss of faith. But right belief and right practice, that actually is the power of God through the Holy Spirit to transform you. When what you believe and what you live are consistent, in other words, the work of the Holy Spirit to transform you deep, deep within you is accomplished. Jesus' teaching, in other words, isn't just aimed at our minds. We're not just brains on sticks. It's not about just thinking all the right things or believing all the right things. It's also about how we live. 
You can know the Bible backwards and forwards, but the goal isn't just to have the information. Nor is the Sermon on the Mount an exhortation just to try harder, to do better. Jesus' teaching ultimately here is meant to draw us to him. It's important to remember who's speaking these words in the Sermon on the Mount. They come from the very lips of Jesus, God incarnate. He's revealing truth. He's revealing his love. He's revealing a vision for life with him. It's Jesus that we need, Jesus that we want. And Jesus' life exemplified this teaching. He not only spoke the truth, he embodied it. And so when we look at the life of Jesus and we look at the teachings of Jesus, we see true and good and beautiful life, the life we were made for, the life we were made to experience. We see true humanity in Christ. That's what he wants for us, that kind of life, life to the full, he calls it in John 10.10. So Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount is clear that we can't do this on our own. It is all grace. But I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, grace is opposed to earning, not opposed to effort. We are not saved by what we do, but we are called to do. We have to build our life on Jesus' teaching, trusting his words and saving and trusting in his saving work of the cross. It does take the spirit of God to transform us, to make us into more Christ-like, Christ-shaped people. And the Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to practice what we know. So, as we enter into the Sermon on the, on the Mount, I want to encourage you to read it. Read Matthew 5 through 7. Um, read it repeatedly and just kind of immerse yourself in the teachings of Jesus. And one of my prayers for our community is that as we immerse ourselves in the teachings of Jesus, the Holy Spirit will reveal in those places, those places in us where we need uh, to put our trust more fully in Jesus, where we need uh, to build on him as our firm foundation. We all have areas that we want to grow and depend more and more on Christ, that we will be able to say to Jesus, help me do the deep work of surrender and brokenness. Change me and make me more like you in this area and in that area and in this part of who I am. And so I want to encourage you, as we seek to do this together, to live out uh, the way of Jesus uh, as someone has once said, if we want the life of Jesus, we have to take up the lifestyle of Jesus. That's what we're after. We want to live into that. If we want to do that, um, I just want to encourage you. It's beautiful, and it's powerful, and it's really hard. It's really hard. It is really challenging. And here's the encouragement. Uh, we're not meant to do it alone. We do it with the Lord, and we do it with one another. That's the call. That's what the church is meant to be. It's meant to be the place where we don't follow Jesus by ourselves, but we follow Jesus, as we say, in a community. And so I encourage you, one of the ways that we do that here at Apostles is in life groups. Life groups, the aim of a life group is to follow Jesus together. And I, you know, this past week, we, um, in our life group, we started this discussion about the Sermon on the Mount. And it was awesome. We, we sat around a table in our backyard and we read out loud the whole uh, chapter five through seven out loud. And we just kind of, let that kind of sink in a little bit. And we started talking about, you know, what excites us about that and what's intimidating about that and began to share. And then after that, a little while of that, we, we just took time to pray. And people shared some things, some real messy things in the messiness of everyday life that are going on. And we prayed for one another. And we encouraged one another. And we continue to pray for each other. And that is a picture of what it looks like to, to follow Jesus together. We're not meant to do this on our own. We can't follow Jesus in the messiness of everyday life by ourselves. 
And so we need Jesus, we need each other, we need community around us. And so I want to encourage you, if you don't have that kind of community, uh, this is a great opportunity to find it. And so if you want to learn more about life groups, please come talk to me or you can talk to Eric. But ask somebody around our church who's in a life group. This is an opportunity maybe to jump in so that you can learn to follow Jesus with others. Don't go it alone. So I'm excited uh, to do this just as we end, and we're going to transition into a time of prayer. But I did want to just mention uh, a couple of resources that I have found to be really helpful. So uh, this book is called The Jesus Lifestyle, and it walks through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. It's by uh, Nikki Gumbel. You may be familiar with Nikki Gumbel. He helped start Alpha, if you're familiar with that. This is a great Great book. Uh, I've been using this kind of devotionally. Our life group leaders are using this devotional, uh, devotionally. It's a great opportunity. Uh, last one, or the next one is uh, John Stott's The Message of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so just really great um, uh, commentary, someone to journey through the Sermon on the Mount with. It was really helpful. And then the last one uh, is a little more in-depth. It's called The Story of God Bible Commentary. Uh, this is a relatively new series that's come out. Uh, this uh, particular volume is ed- uh, edited and written by Scott McKnight and has uh, some really good insights and encouragement on how to approach the Sermon on the Mount. So I encourage you uh, to read those um, as we enter into this next series together. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.